Days are weird, aren't they? By the way, when Ravi read out of, uh, he had to ask me, make sure, because I've been preaching prophecy for, gosh, six months, eight months. So I sent him the scripture to want him to read. So he checked with me this morning and says, are you sure? It's on, you know, because it's on marriage and the family. So obviously we're going to be talking about um, marriage and the family. Your Bible, And we're going to talk about some prophecy too. So your Bible's open to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. But I wanted to go to Ephesians 5, and then I'm going to share with you a couple of things. Um, when I was sharing about what God did with Gideon, uh, which is a great illustration of being filled with the Spirit. As a matter of fact, what Gideon experienced, there are several individuals in the Old Testament. The Spirit was with, if you're thinking about some theology here, the Spirit was with people and with believers, but the Spirit did not indwell believers like it does from in the New Covenant, starting at Pentecost, okay? The church was born, and how the church is born and keeps growing as individuals are born again and the Spirit of God fills them and seals them for the day of redemption. That didn't happen in the Old Testament with the work of the Spirit. But there would be on occasions the Spirit would fill somebody, and Gideon was one of those individuals. He also, the Spirit, if you're reading the Old Testament, did it with Moses, he did it with Abraham, he did it with Samson. Uh, on occasions, God would fill, it says the Spirit filled Samson, and then Samson would do something absolutely incredible. And so, the Holy Spirit, and I love what uh, Galatians 2.20, this is one of our memory verses, part of I'm crucified with Christ. But here, here's for all of us, male or female, anybody that knows Christ as Lord and Savior. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We just sang about it, right? Can you honestly, I mean, I'm not asking you to raise your hand and stand up and share a testimony. But it should be pretty obvious that Christ lives in you. Let's just be honest, right? The Son of God, the creator of the universe, abiding in you. Yet we, we live in a time where Christians are more like the world than they've ever been and there's not much Christ-likeness going on even in the local church. What Robbie read was uh, Matthew 19, 1 through 11. Now, I don't know if you noticed exactly what Jesus said when it was about marriage and divorce, but Jesus quoted something. Okay, I'm not going to go to it, but Remember what Jesus quoted? What did he refer to, Robbie? He referred all the way back to where? Creation. So, so let me say, did Jesus believe in Adam and Eve? Are you, is that what you're telling me? Jesus believed that Adam and Eve were literal? And the book of Genesis can be taken literal? Is that what Jesus meant? That's exactly what he meant. So he doesn't go back to some point in history. He goes all the way back at the beginning. And he says, in the beginning, he who made them made them male and female. Remember that. He made them male and female. You know, Romans 1 talks about having a reprobate mind. That, that a nation, a people can have a reprobate mind. God gave them over you can read that sometime. Uh, 
He does it three times. God gave them over. God gave them over. And one time he says, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. And then he mentions homosexuality. But God, when, you, when you think there's more than two genders, you have a reprobate mind. Am I correct? Amen? That's clear. Besides the marriage passage, that's clear. Now, let me show you something else. The convention, our Southern Baptist Convention struggling over this. With that in mind, hold your finger at Ephesians 5, right? That's where I, did I say Ephesians 5? Just checking. Go, go to uh, 1 Timothy. Let me show you this. Now, I want you to read 1 Timothy with me. I'm going to read it. But I want you to follow along, and I want you to read it with me in light of what we just read that Jesus said. Okay? 1 Timothy. Just a second. I didn't plan to do this, so it's going to take me a minute. To, okay? 1 Timothy chapter... Uh, Chapter 2, 1 Timothy, you know, and all the T's are together. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, um, just pick up at verse, uh, verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Again, that's, that's not necessarily saying every time you pray you lift up your hands, but when you pray, you need to be people who are without anger and quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Peter says the same thing. Uh, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now remember, this is a pastorly epistle. Okay? Paul is writing to a pastor. Paul, Timothy is pastoring in Ephesus. First and second Timothy. Titus is another pastorly epistle. So Paul's talking about church life, worship life. Okay, because there's other places in the book of First Corinthians that tells us that women teach children and women can teach and women can testify, but this is the leadership. Now, what I want you what you want you to notice is what does Paul do when he talks about this? See, because we're kind of bickering about that among some people is can women fill the pulpit? Now, this is going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, I don't know if it got to the floor, but but they're bringing it up in their little meetings, and so so it says. Um, I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands. Likewise, also the women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, modest, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, obviously, Paul in other places is going to tell women they ought to be teaching children, and they ought to be and older women teach younger women. I mean, that's that's all. That, so you have to take this in context. But he's talking about worship leadership. He's talking about pastors and and deacons, okay, elders, pastors and elders. Then he says in verse, and so where does where does Paul go to argue this? To say this is, he goes to creation. You, you think, 
See, we call this a creation ordinance. I didn't make this up. God in his wisdom. So he says, for Adam was formed first. So, so created order comes with authority. Who was the leader of Adam and Eve? Okay. When Eve sinned and then Adam followed her, who did God hold accountable? Adam. <clears throat> Why? Because he was God's appointed head. So like the family is like the church. Is the church a family? Do men leave their homes? Supposed to? Do men leave the church? See, all this is just simple in the text unless you start getting into higher criticism and say, oh, this was cultural. This was all cultural in the first century. The problem with it being cultural is that both Jesus and Paul take it back to where? Creation. And I think the one who made men and women from the beginning would know what men and women ought to be doing, right? God knew, God figured that a man would know he's a man and a woman would know he's a woman, right? <laughs> anyway, so I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And then he says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. And all that means is salvation doesn't come with being a mom. But the greatest thing that moms offer is nurturing a child. The greatest thing in the world for a mom is bearing children. And it says if they, they continue. That, that's just a side note. Now we're in, now we're in Ephesians, chapter, Ephesians chapter 5. I did want to mention, I don't know why I'm consumed with mentioning the prophecy, but go to Ephesians 5, and I just want to mention a couple of things. I was reading this week <clears throat> about uh, studying for next Sunday and all the Sundays to follow, and uh, my thought was, you know, the Bible says, and this because I'm telling men, you're to be leaders. Now, the passage we're dealing with is going to talk about that, but I more want to talk about God's love and biblical love between husband and wife and family members. We'll get there in a minute. But I was reading in, uh, in Luke 21, uh, but also in 2 Thessalonians, where in the last days, okay, and uh, that, <clears throat> that there would be great fear, okay. Uh, Luke 21, around verse 26, says that there will be great fear with people on the earth and they will pass out. Some of them will have heart attacks because of what's coming upon the earth. And I think about the response. And, and I, again, I know that's a tribulation passage. Okay, I know and most of us won't be here. But obviously, because we're living in the last days, one of the responsibilities of dads and fathers and parents and moms but primarily, the beginning with the fathers is to be teaching your children the word of God so you won't have fear. That because of the pandemic or the plandemic, as I call it, and because of all the changes that have come post-COVID and all the things they're talking about changing, uh, we should have no fear because we know God's word and we know what God's word teaches about the last days. You know... Are you preparing your children for the last days? Are, are you preparing your wife for the last days? Are you preparing your home for the last days? Folks, we're in the midst of the last days. Let me give you this little bit of information. 
And I'm not dating anything. I'm not saying Jesus is coming in five years. I'm not saying that, but I want you to listen. Israel became a nation. I mentioned this two weeks ago. Israel became a nation in 19... They had not been a nation for over 2,000 years, okay? Okay, over 2,000 years. They became a nation in a day. But Isaiah said that would happen. So they became a nation in May of 1948, okay? And remember when Jesus said, when you see the fig tree budding... Now, I'm paraphrasing some stuff. This is out of Matthew 25... When you see the fig tree budding, and then he also says, the generation that's alive that sees these things will see the end of days, basically is what Jesus says. So, so, you, so scholars, and, and I like this idea. I want you to think with me. Two things I want you to think about. So in 1948, Israel became a nation. And he, Jesus himself, implies that's the fig tree budding. And then he says that the people that are alive, a generation is not going to go by before all comes to an end. Well, then you go to Psalms 90.10, and it tells us, yes, a generation is 70, yes, maybe 80. So the most in a generation is 80 years, okay? So you can take, you can take 1948 with me and add 80 years. Add 80 years to that. And you come up with what? You'd be challenging your math. 2,000 what? 28, right? Something like that. 28, 28. It's really 2,029 because Jewish days are short. Their years are shorter than our years. Doesn't matter. But if you take that, then you would have to admit on a calendar, since Israel became a nation, that alone puts us in the last days. Close in the, it is in the, when, when Israel became a nation, we were in the latter days of the last days. Does that make sense? Also, just, just a rule, when the Bible talks about a day being a thousand years and a thousand years as a day, we think all of history is on a 7,000 year, which is God's number of completion, seven. And in our, so a thousand years to us is like a day to God. It's not saying exactly. So you would think that a week there would be there would be seven days. There would be 6,000 years of history. And then there would be a thousand year rest, right? Which that's called the millennial kingdom. A thousand year of Christ's reign. Well, folks, we're on the cusp of, 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 of biblical history. You can go to Genesis and follow the genealogies. And we are right at 6,000 years of biblical history. And then the seventh day would be a thousand years of the tribute, a thousand years of the millennial kingdom. So that would be a full seven days or 7,000 years of what we would know as biblical history. So scholars talk about those things and say that, that we are really, we really are highly possible living in the latter part of the latter days. But let me tell you what you're doing right now in your mind. Because I'll do the same thing. There's a part of you that says, you like me doing that? You scoff at that because we've been saying this for so long, right? You scoff at that. Well, that's exactly what Peter said would happen in 2 Peter 2 and 3. You would scoff that because you've heard this message and these things have happened so often have been talked about, you scoff at it. Well, folks, I, I think the scoffing needs to come to an end. I think today, if they're, continue, if they're going to do what they plan to do, today there's going to be some big congressional gathering about E.T. 
and they're going to talk about it. They're going to release all this information the military has about ETs and UFOs. And, and they think that there's some kind of ancient, you know, ancient aliens, as there's a show called that, I think. You know, you're with me. All that's a lie. It's all demonic, right? Fallen angels or demons. That's what all that is. But, but it, it, you know, here it is. The Bible says a third of the angels fell. That's probably hundreds of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of fallen angels. And they're much more powerful than me and you. They, they can manifest themselves. And you can study the Old Testament. They made things. They helped man make things after the fall. So, so, so whether it's UFOs or, or, or cyborgs or aliens, what you think, it's all demonic. But uh, I think today was when the government was supposed to make and, and maybe, and listen, the Catholics have already admitted they're going to baptize aliens. They call aliens, no kidding, you, you can do this for yourself. You, you can study this and type, do a Google search, whatever search you want to use, and put Catholics and baptize aliens, and you'll find the articles where they're saying, aliens are my brother. So they're expecting, that's why they have these, these telescopes looking into space. And I read all that to you a couple of weeks ago. But they're waiting on E.T. I think about just another thing is what we just went through, this, pan, this worldwide pandemic, which they convinced us that we needed to do things that we're all not sure we were supposed to have to do. And I think about how the Antichrist is going to have so much more authority and so much more persuasion. There's an asteroid that NASA named several months ago that might hit the earth. Now they've changed their mind that there are tons and tons and tons of, of um, physicists and, and people, stargazers that believe it may hit us. That's like in 2029. Jesus, well, by the way, Jesus said 21 times. It's, if you think about Christ, now there's the first coming. That would be you know, what the Old Testament predicted that Jesus was going to come. Uh, so th there were so many predictions of him coming the first time. And then there's tons of predictions that he's going to come the second time, as in rapture the church and come to rule on the earth. It's eight to one. For every time the Old Testament talked about him coming as the Messiah, the virgin-born Messiah, one time, there's eight references to Jesus coming a second time to rapture his church and rule on this earth. That's pretty profound, isn't it? Jesus mentioned he was going to come back 21 times to rule on this earth. So, folks, I, I can say with, with certainty that Jesus is going to come back. And I can say with somewhat uh, security that I'm convinced that it probably will be in my lifetime. I'm, I'm convinced of that. But I do want to say that Paul was convinced of that 2,000 years ago too. Okay? So what do we do? The Bible says we work, we buy houses, we do our job, we plan, we do everything as if he weren't coming back, but we prepare our hearts every day as if, as if he was. Go, go, go with me to Ephesians chapter 5 and let's talk about biblical love. <clears throat> and if we have a chance, I want to show you the meanest man in the world if we have time to do the, the, the antithesis to biblical manhood is spoken about in the book of Revelation. But right now I want to be, 
take your take your attention to, to Ephesians chapter five, and uh, I'll begin reading at verse twenty two. Ephesians chapter five, verse twenty two. I wrote down a note on the front of my Bible, and that's what I said. It says, uh, it "says Hey, Dad, fathers and men, is God displeased?" with your fruitless life and is his conviction pressing heavy upon your heart today? Paul told the Corinthian men in, in 1 Corinthians 16 towards the end of, obviously he's, he's writing and he's coming to the conclusion of 1 Corinthians and he had called on men, you know, do you not know men? He kept doing that. Here's what one of the last verses of 1 Corinthians says, be watchful, Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Act like men. Be strong. So, so Paul had in his mind what a biblical man of God looks like. Well, Ephesians 5 deals with that. What a biblical man of God looks like. And of course, Christ is our model. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 22 says, wives, uh, submit to your... Well, I'll tell you what. Stop. Don't, don't read that yet, okay? <laughs> what, you know, because I don't like taking things just completely out of context. So I have to go back to verse 17 of chapter 4 because that's where Paul talks about the new life, if you don't mind. So chapter 4, I won't read all this, okay? But chapter 4, verse 17 Paul talks, our class dealt with the doctrine of sanctification a few weeks, for a couple of weeks. Uh, the idea of being sanctified. We called it progressive sanctification. Which, you know, there's positional sanctification, which means when Christ saves you, He sets you apart for His kingdom. That's positional. Progressive sanctification is that I, day by day, moment by moment, surrender my will to His, to his will, to His word and to His spirit. So I day by day am sanctified, progressively becoming more and more obedient to Scripture and to the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's progressive, progressive sanctification. But one way of saying that is we take off the old and we put on the new. That's how Paul's saying it here in Ephesians 4. Verse 17 says, this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Please don't. Please don't walk like the pagans. The word walk is manner of life. Don't let your life model the pagans. Now think about the warnings the Bible gives us about doing that, letting the world, um, Romans 12, squeeze us, squeeze us in its mold. Where, so he says, basically I'm begging you, I'm testifying in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentile pagans do in the futility of their mind. Why, why would I want the opinion of a pagan? Why would I, as a follower of Christ, want to follow the lifestyle of an infidel? Why would I do that? Why do we allow our children and youth to model their lives after some perverted TV star or rock musician? Why, why do we do that? Paul begs us, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't follow the, of the Gentiles because they're in the futility of their minds. Look what he says about them. They are darkened in their understanding. 
alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Folks, these folks that are unsaved, they're in darkness, they're ignoramuses, they don't know the truth. Why would we model, or why would we allow anybody in our families to model their lives after infidels? They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learn Christ. Then Paul says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So obviously, godliness is all about pursuing the word of truth, right? Knowing the truth and being taught the truth. How many of you desire to be taught the truth? I mean, folks, you hear me two or three times a week. If you watch me, of course, I wasn't on this week, you know, a little bit Wednesday, a little bit Sunday. I mean, a little bit Friday, a little bit Wednesday. Here on Wednesday nights and on Sundays. But I'm not the only one teaching the Bible. There's never... I signed up for a conference um, that started Friday, okay? It's, it's a virtual conference. There are 50 sermons that I can listen to at this. They're having the conference right now, and I have four months to listen to it, okay? But the point would be, you have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of opportunities to be taught from solid scholars God's Word. Are you being taught? Do you want to be taught God's Word? When was the last time you desired to, to, be, to go to a Bible study, to, to attend Sunday school? Do you even bring your Bible to worship to learn about what God's Word says? He says, but that is not the way sensuality, right? Uh, greediness, impurity. You didn't learn that from Christ. If you have been a disciple of Christ, is what he's saying, that we're taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, here, here's what Paul says. To put off, to put off uh, our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt, through deceitful desires, okay? And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So the old man, okay? So as a believer, there's a new self. And so what I do with the old self is I put off the old self. By the way, he's, a, he's been defeated. Through the new birth, the old man's been defeated. He's been dethroned. But he's still there decaying. And if I give him an opportunity, I can, I can go back to the old man and live as if I'm dead. This is what Paul's arguing. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So not only think about God's word, but uh, think about the prominence of evil. The priority to pursue God's word, but... Yet you're faced with the prominence of an evil, an evil old nature uh, that still lingers. Uh, old man, uh, sometimes it's called the old man, old nature. The flesh, many times Paul calls it the flesh. 
when you get in the flesh, you live according to the old man. It says, and, and to be renewed in the, it says, former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And so don't do that, but be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So it's a, it's a thing of, of, of the thought processes and being taught and learning, uh, learning about Christ. And to put on the new self. So take off the old, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. And then he says, be angry, you know, and do not sin. So, so our time together, when we come together as believers, one of the great things we do is we speak the truth together. That we're truthers. We're able to get together and all that we want to talk about or we should want to talk about is the truth of God's word. I told people several times in class and Wednesday nights and even may have mentioned it in here, but if you think of the significance of, of Hebrews 4.12 that says the word of God is living and active and sharper than two ed, any two-edged sword. And then it says that it divides of the soul and spirit and it, it is, discerns the thoughts and intents of our hearts. I, I don't even know my own heart. The word of God can discern my thoughts and intents. So there's nothing in the world that can do that except God's word. The truth that is in Jesus. So if you want to live like Christ, you're going to know His Word. So folks, don't follow people that don't know God's Word. Don't give them a hearing. Because they're muddling around in the darkness. Because only the Word is truth. And, and walking in the light is, is, is a synonym of, of following the Lord Jesus. Now we can go to Ephesians 5.22. And I know I only have six minutes, but... 22 says, chapter 5, verse 22 says, Wives, submit your, to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, again, this word, by the way, you can look at the last verse of chapter uh, 5, I mean, of chapter 4, okay? Uh, and it tells us, uh, I'm sorry, it, it tells us that we, we can be, uh, I'm, not, I'm sorry, I'm at the wrong chapter. Uh, if you look at verse 21, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 21. That's right before 22. Look what he says to, to believers in general. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's a mutual submission. There's a mutual submission where we submit. We, that's where Paul says, uh, consider others. Uh, Romans, in the book of Romans 14, consider others more important than yourselves. That's Romans 14. The very thing that our theme verse a couple of years ago, uh, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet and, and he got up and he says, I've given you an example that just as I've done to you, you to do to others. That's being submissive to one another. It's, that verse has nothing to do with church, does have nothing to do with church authority. It has nothing to do with marriage. It's just in general. Church life, we're to submit to one another. But then he goes into the home and he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. Now, just to let you know this word, submit. Uh, let me give you some ways it appears uh, in, in Koine, the common man's language of the Bible days. Also, it appears in the Bible. Governing authorities. It, the Bible calls us to submit to governing authorities. 
It's a military word. It was used in the military for when somebody would line up under somebody of a greater rank. You would submit to the greater rank. Um, The Bible says we submit to one another. It says that we submit to our spiritual leaders. The same word is used when the Bible describes demons submitting to the authority of Christ. It even says that Christ submitted to the will of the Father. That's my favorite one. So, So when the Bible asks a wife to submit to her husband out of reverence for Christ, that's what Christ did to the Father. Same word. He submitted to the will of the Father. He, and the word means to align yourself up under. That's what it means. It does, it's not talking about value. It's not talking about uh, who's smarter. It's God's order. It's just a created order. Somebody has to be the head, and it's the man. That's what God says. So wives, submit to your own husbands. Ask the Lord. You don't submit to people at work like you do to, to your husband. That's forbidden. Your, your employer is not your husband. You don't submit and, and for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, which is his body, and is himself its Savior. Christ is the church's Savior. A husband is the wife's leader. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to, to, in everything to their husbands. It doesn't mean you don't use your persuasion. It doesn't mean you don't use your intellect. It doesn't mean you can't compromise. What it's saying is, is that somebody's going to be held accountable for godliness in your home. And when, you're, when the man of the house stands before Christ, there will be a different reckoning for him than for you. That's what the Bible says. But then here's the issue. When, when we talk about, we do a lot of premarital counseling, people, husbands love the submissive passages, right? Oh, they love to quote that. Of course, they most of the time, if they're quoting it, they're taking it out of context most of the time. Okay? But if you want to trump them, then you go to verse 25. That is, that is the seasoning part of being submissive to your husbands because your husbands are to love the wife as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do for the church? He gave himself up. So. Here's quickly, we got three minutes. Number one, biblical love is sacrificial, right? If you want to look at biblical love, the Bible says that Jesus gave himself up for the church. And, and you know what that means. is he, he was crucified, gave himself, and bought the church with his own. But he, for the church to be born, for people to be saved and brought into the family of God, is all because Christ died on the cross. So he... He gave himself up. By the way, that's the why the body, when, when the body, Christians are saved, by nature we want to be submissive to the one who saved us from our sins. And then that's the argument for why the church ought to structure itself like the head says structure it. Because, because he saved us. He's the one that bought us. And, so we, and of course that same argument should, should come into the home. My wife should want to submit to me because I love her like Christ loved the church. That makes it so much easier. Let's keep reading. So we know that this biblical love is sacrificial. Well, let's read on. It says, uh, my, my page turned. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify. So not only is it a sacrificial love, it's a sanctifying love. It's right there in the text. That he might sanctify her. And then here's the key having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Now, uh, uh, 
That, that word cleanse uh, is, uh, is the word. If you've had a heart catheterization, you with me? They run, you know what, shake, help me. That's the Greek word is our English word catheterize, to clean out, right? So the goal of the husband is for not only does he love his wife, but he sanct his sanctifying love. He wants her to be cleansed by the washing of water with the word. He wants God's presence to cleanse her. He wants, folks, here, here's what they tell you, and this is true. A husband, he, he, he is leading his wife to be a bride to himself. That's true. But he's ultimately leading her because she is part of the bride of Christ. You're preparing a bride that's going to meet Jesus, right? She's part of the bride, too, that's going to meet Jesus. So, so it's a same. And look what he keeps going on. He wants to present. He says, so that he might present the church to him. Now he's back to the church. Present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So now we want to set her apart so she'll be pure. One of the words there means without, when it says it's, it means an ink stain or a wrinkle that, that we want our spouses to be spiritually pure, set apart for God to, to use, no wrinkle, no spot. We want them to know God's word. And, and look, look what it says. It says, uh, that she might be holy and without blemish. Uh, oh, yeah. Go back up to the beginning of verse 27. I, I know I'm going to go over a little, okay? But look at verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself. Now, this, if you don't, this is profound, okay? When we're talking about salvation now and salvation of the church, the church is the bride. I mean, the picture here is. The husband's to be like Christ, and he's, he's the head of his home. Be like Christ. Christ is preparing his bride, right? In a marriage, usually the bride is given away by like somebody else, right? If I'm doing a wedding, right? Somebody else gives the bride away, right? Well, in the text, and this isn't the only time this appears, Christ is the one that gives her away. And keeps her. He's both of them. To her, he gives her to himself. You with me? He doesn't give her away to somebody. He gives her to himself. So he takes care of all of salvation, right? And he's, he's taking care of the whole plan of sanctification. He's told us how to be sanctified. He took care of all of it. So he can present her to himself as a chaste bride. Nobody else has to be involved except Christ. Folks, all the marriage needs is Christ. And we'll keep reading. So you have a sacrificial love. You have a sanctifying love. Let's move on. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I like that. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Now, I would say if you're using S's, and that's what I'm doing, you have a sacrificial love, you have a sanctifying love, and then you have a serving love. Uh, he treats her as his own body. Uh, if he loves his wife, he loves himself. So 
It's, it's a serving. Uh, and then it says a nourish and cherish. Uh, I, I do know the word cherish. You with me? By the way, both these words, nourish and cherish, nourish, you don't care what the Greek word is, but it means to grow something from, from seedling to maturity. We, we would say the person that does that is a husbandman. That's where the word came from. A husbandman, a farmer, takes care of it from planting to producing fruit, right? That word comes from being a husband, the husbandman. So that's what a husband does. He, he nourishes, he, he takes care of the bride, his wife, from beginning to end. He's responsible. He wants to be responsible. But that, but that, so if a, if a husband, the idea of the word is he's present. The idea of husband is he's present with his wife. And, and that, the same word, cherish, are you, are you looking at your Bibles? The word cherish, you look it up yourself. You know what the word means? Body heat. Body heat. It, it's, it, part of it is used when, when hens and laying on eggs, but, but it means body heat, close together. Nourish, you have to be present with them. Folks, playing golf seven days a week and not spending time, that's not biblical because you, you're not nourishing. You can't nourish and cherish your wife if you're not with them. Am I right? You've got to be with them. Folks, there's nothing like, of course, I know I'm old. Diane and I are getting older. There's nothing like sitting, sitting in the living room with my wife holding her hand or whatever, just watching TV or, or whatever we bridged. We were stuck on British TV. That's life. We love that. We, don't have, we just want each other. And so, so there's this serving. You with me? I'm finishing. You with? You got your Bibles open. So there's sacrificial love. There's sanctifying love. There's serving love. And then verse 30. I love we, because this is securing love, right? Because we are members of His body. You know, when you were saved, Ephesians 1 tells us this, if we want to go back. We were placed in His body. We were... We were crucified with Him, buried with Him, and, and glorified with Him. We, we were placed in His body. We are in His body. By the way, you, you know you get to the end of the book of Revelation, you know there's a celebration for believers. And it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage. But why? Because our relationship with Christ is like an intimate marriage. So my marriage to Diane ought to model my relationship with Christ and vice versa. Every Christian home is a picture of Christ's redeeming love. And you know what we do a lot in our house? We, even now at 60 years of age, you know what we have to do a lot of? Forgiveness. Is that common at your house? Do you have to forgive one another? Is that not Christ-like? Hello? Is it? Did Christ forgive you of anything, right? That's the argument. So how can we hold a grudge against the very one we love? So, so, so it's securing. Look what he says, and I'll finish, I promise. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. Well, he says, because we are members of his body. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, and we know that is the word cleave, leave and cleave, to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. Then look at verse 32. He says, this is a mystery, but I'm really talking about Christ and the church. Folks, he's talking about a secure love that, that we're, we're in his body. We're, we're, we're held together by him. You know, we, we leave, and once we leave, and, and we're his, and, and we hold fast. He holds fast to us. And, and then he says, 
this mystery is profound, but I am saying I refer to Christ in the church. I also want to say that that's a, it's a sacred kind of love, right? That my love for my wife becomes sacred because it, it in some way mirrors the love uh, that, that Christ had for me and for lost people, and now he has for his church, that, that my love for my wife, and so I would say it's a, um, it's a sacred love. Now, let me just say this, and we'll close. You can only understand sacrificial love, sanctifying love, serving love, securing love, and sacred love. You only understand that because of one main thing, because you've been regenerated. Because you've been born again. The Bible says if you haven't been born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. This makes no sense to you. But for those of us that have been regenerated, the word regenerate means been given life, new birth, born again, that the life of Christ is in me, that's when this makes sense. God has called us to a sacrificial, sanctifying love. And, and, and the weight of things is on the husband. The husband's the head of the home as Christ is head of the church. Let's stand together for our closing prayer. Thank you for being here this morning. God bless you. I hope you have a great Father's Day. Hopefully you can beat the Presbyterians to the restaurant. God's good, isn't he? Let me say it. God's good. Amen. Let me encourage you. If you're not in Bible study, we're, you know, we're not full. We're not doing everything we can do, but we will. We want you in Bible study. You know, 9.15 is a little early, but 9.15 or 9.20-ish, and we need you to be in Bible study and study God's Word with us. Let's pray. We love you, Lord, and thank you for your holy word. And Father, for the foundation of the home and, and how the design of every, every home is really goes back to the creation of man, that you made them male and female, and you told them to be fruitful and multiply. Father, we have an awesome responsibility. Father, we're not only raising children to survive in this world we're we're raising children that are going to meet the lord jesus christ in the days to come father help us to be besotted with christ help us to be besotted with godliness and holiness father help us to love marriage like you love marriage in jesus name amen